0: This is Space 101.1, LPFM, Magnuson Park, KMGP.
1: That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest. Metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good
0: evening and welcome to the April 9th, uh, 2023 edition of Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bennell. I'll be with you for the next hour. We're the only live history program live radio program focused on Pacific Northwest history anywhere in the Pacific Northwest, as far as we know. Excuse me. Um, uh, If you joined us live last week, we did a live broadcast from Seattle High School Memorial Stadium. We snuck down there. Um, Ken Zick, our roving correspondent and intrepid field producer, he joined me. We set up in the back of uh, the tailgate of my car. Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels joined us for most of the show. I think for all the show, actually. Lots of great conversation, standing there in the rain and the cold next to the stadium. And um, one thing, I forgot to press record on the portable mixing board that I had with me. And the recording back here at the station failed as well. So it was only a live radio show. Kind of a throwback to when, if you wanted to hear a show on the radio, you had to be there to listen to it, or set up your boombox to tape it, or set up your tape deck to tape it, but... um, Really sorry, because it was a really good show, and it only gets better in my mind as time goes past, and the fact I know, since I know a recording doesn't exist, I, it's now probably the best show we've ever done. It was really good. If you missed it, boy, you don't want to miss live live hist- live radio shows about Pacific Northwest history. It's probably good to tune in at Sunday night, Pacific, t- 8 o'clock Pacific time every week to hear the show. We have a really good episode uh, ahead for you this this evening. Um, it's the Easter edition. I should have asked, last week, I should have asked people to dig those old Easter photos out of their collections. The Santa photos around here get a lot of attention. There was a guy named Art French, the photographer from the Seattle P.I., who invented Santa photography back in the 1940s. He was uh, sitting in his office at the P.I. and looked down at the Frederick Nelson and thought, boy, I could take pictures of kids and sell them to their parents. And he started doing that at Easter as well. And I know there's there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of those kind of creepy Easter photos of a, a creepy Easter bunny costumed person and a kid sitting on the lap and not as popular as Santa, but I know they're out there. But next year, remind me, and we'll, we'll call for those in advance, and we'll do a big thing on social media, and people can post their photos and share them and everything like that. But it's, it's too late now. Um, but we do have other good stuff on the show tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Katie Mayer. She's a technical services librarian at the Oregon Historical Society. That's the statewide uh, heritage group for the uh, Beaver State. She posted a, did a thing for their blog recently about mushrooms and viewmasters. And if you know anything about either of those two subjects, you know they're near and dear to the hearts of many Northwesterners. So we'll hear about some specifics around the uh, history of viewmasters and mushrooms and where they intersect in the collection of the Oregon Historical Society. We'll also play the next installment in our um, ongoing series of Washington at Work from 1938 from that uh, J.C. Penney program put together by KOMO Radio, where they toured, just exhaustively toured through every... Seems like every back room of that store, and we're only—god—we're less than halfway through the entire uh, entire recording. We'll hear another few minutes tonight. Well, actually, you know, we should hear the tease. Let's listen. This is this is where last week's episode ended.
2: And we decided we'd follow the progress of the dolly full of the little cart full of that item to its ultimate destination. And in, on your floor, we happen to choose a sheet. Now, I'd like to know where that sheet comes to you from.
0: Yes. Wouldn't we all like to know where that sheet comes to you from? And we will. We'll find out later in the show. But first, we're joined by Professor Andy Schenken from um, UC Berkeley. And let me see if I can get him on the phone here. we got our little phone buttons we have to press. And Andy, can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Oh, I love when that works. <laughs> <laughs> it's always it's always like a, there's a moment of silence where I think, oh, no, what am I going to do now? Um, so I reached out to you a few weeks ago because... Um, Lee Corbin, who's a really good friend of mine, who does a lot of research uh, for some projects that we're both involved in, he came across an article you wrote about 20 years ago about living memorials, and we traded emails, and I think I told you a little bit about that we have a um, a 1947 stadium here that's called Seattle High School Memorial Stadium that um, a group of, uh, it's owned by the school district, and it's sort of co-managed with the city, and they're now looking for private partners to come in and demolish it, tear it down, and build something new and shiny and bright. And because they've been sort of ignoring the maintenance on this thing for the last, oh, at least the last 30 years. And I, you know, it's, I'm trying to lead an effort to educate people about the fact that the stadium itself is the memorial. And I was intrigued by work you did about how people were looking at war memorials while World War II was still underway.
3: Right. Yeah.
0: And, uh, yeah, go ahead. And I was just curious so what was what was different about World War II in terms of how people were thinking about you know paying tribute to the the people who you know gave made the ultimate sacrifice and you know gave their lives during that, that conflict 80 years ago.
3: Right, so World War II was really a, a divide. There was a, a kind of sea change um, around 1940. And part of it it's actually really complex, but the the short answer is that living memorials had been around really since the Civil War and it gained a little bit of steam after World War I. But there were a set of cultural sh- issues that led to a more profound shift after World War II, one of which is the two world wars had been so devastating, and the people who came back from World War II, the greatest so-called greatest generation, really didn't want to talk about it very much. And they, were, they, they found the traditional memorials, the columns and obelisks and, and more strident monumental types of memorials, they found these unfitting for a war that was really dark. And so that shifting led to a new kind of memorialization uh, in which living memorials of all sorts, not just buildings, but also parks, memorial parks, who's not played in one, right, and memorial schools and all sorts of civic buildings. These came to the fore, memorial highways for that matter. And so uh, you see a lot more of them in the, in the landscape from that era than you did say from World War I, although they certainly exist from World War I, too.
0: Yeah, I think I went swimming once, this is like 40 years ago, in Honolulu, there's something called the Natatorium, which I think is a World War I memorial swimming pool.
3: Yes, that's yeah. right. And, it was, it and was, I, <laughs> What's that? Yeah, I was going to say, in a lot of the younger states, I'm sure this happened in Washington, Oregon, definitely in California, as a, as a lot of the municipalities that were growing so fast required new kinds of civic infrastructure, and they took the impetus of a, of a memorial as a way of getting that infrastructure sometimes.
0: Yeah and and so, I, li- I I yeah. liked, I like I like the practical side of that that makes that makes perfect sense. It's like the yeah, the population's exploding or it's about to explode I guess with the the baby boom that that I don't know if anyone did anyone actually anticipate the baby boom after World War II or was that a surprise? Did your research address that at all?
3: <laughs> I don't know, that's, that's beyond my research. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a little
0: little off topic. <laughs> yeah. But that 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 notion of building something practical seems makes perfect sense given that resources are always limited, but I also like yeah. the notion of, you know, if if the, the, this particular you know Seattle High School Memorial Stadium it was built and all the the language around when they were raising the money for it or doing the planning trying to actually pick a location choose an architect and everything it was this notion of you know let's let's remember the the students from Seattle Public Schools who gave their lives in the war let's remember them by creating a place where kids can use it and play on it and celebrate the fact that we have our freedom it's like it's Instead of standing there and looking at a, a monument that might be pretty with columns and, and statues and stuff, let's build something we can actually use, and the very act of using it is is the memorializing.
3: That's right. So uh, in a lot of these cases where living memorials were built, that's the exact rhetoric where they weave in the commemorative aspects of of thanks uh, that are that are part of the commemorative tradition and they eschew these uh, what they thought of as indulgent or vulgar memorials that would have no other purpose but to stand as memorials. And yet sometimes it's hard to know if it's just rhetoric or if it's, <laughs> if, if it's earnest, right? It's really hard to divine that from, from our distance from that moment.
0: And what you're describing about the, you know, the, 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 guy, the people who fought in World War II uh, coming home or not wanting to talk about it, it sort of seems, I'm trying to understand why that would be so different from World War I.
3: Yeah, this is an interesting thing. There's a great book by Paul Fussell about World War One, and then he wrote a second one about World War Two. And in, in in the first one, he's a literary scholar or was a literary scholar. And in the one about World War One, he talks about the great the great poets of the trenches. An incredible amount of literature came out of the trenches in the World War One experience. And it, it's unclear to me exactly why that, that would happen. It would happen that after World War One, that, that a whole generation would grow laconic except that there was a Holocaust. There was an atomic bomb. It was a, it was a darker moment, and, and the world was cast straight into a Cold War in which nuclear annihilation became a fear. So one can imagine that triumphant memorials would be harder to stomach and that we wouldn't want to put a lot of money into that. And then there's a second factor, which is that there was a whole, uh, let's say, zoo of World War I memorials, and they it was easy to add names to them to include World War One to World War Two. So yeah, I think a lot of factors went into it.
0: That, that makes sense. Yeah, I've seen. I, I know those are. I've read those. Both those Paul Fussell books. He's great. He's. I love his his approach to this. The the culture of war and the, the the pop culture of World War II. i I've often thought that you know when I um, when I hear that song like either in Der Führer's face or um, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. I feel like anyone who heard those songs, he must have had like no doubt that we were going to win. It was it was sort of. It seemed like the American spirit of, and the, the pop culture around the war was such that it was like, you know, it was just like a matter. It was, it was a foregone conclusion. And, and maybe I'm naive, and, and looking back, it's easy in, in hindsight to say that. But it, it seemed like there was a different a kind of a. That, the power of culture is pretty amazing. And then to talk about the rhetoric, um, I found a copy of that. In, in your article, you referenced this thing called this pamphlet put out by this uh, society or this organization that was promoting these living, living memorials back during well, World War II was still raging and i found a copy of that i found a copy on ebay for about 10 bucks in really good condition well, okay. just came in the mail a couple of days ago and it's got all sort of these gorgeous photographs of all these stadiums and things that i think most of them were built before world war II, and they're sort of they're they're using them i think you mentioned this in your article that a lot of the examples they show aren't actually what they're talking about there's sort of a there's a meta quality to them um, do you know how successful was that movement in terms of the rhetoric we're talking about, about building these practical things people can use, highways, stadiums, swimming pools, that sort of thing. Any idea what percentage of those got built?
3: I don't know percentages. It would be so hard to quantify yeah, that. Yeah, you have to do a kind of history that I, that I don't really do. But yeah. I, I think it was very successful. It, the rhetoric was very successful, and a lot of communities took, took the bait of it and, and thought, why not get two for one? It's a, it's a classic kind of American pragmatism deal as you said at the beginning of the, of the, of the show. Yeah. So I think it's every little town where I live in the Bay area, um, outside of San Francisco has a little veterans memorial from world war one. And then they added plaques for world war two. So like I said, the younger States were kind of ahead of the curve because of the, just the ways in which cities were developing at a different stage. Um, yeah, and I've seen them all over the country where, where you see um, memorial parks and memorial stadiums and civic buildings from that era. And many of them, like the one in Seattle, it sounds like, are, are extinct in some way. They haven't been kept up, which is the classic way of, of making sure a building doesn't, doesn't last, that you can raise it, which is, yeah. the, you know, defer maintenance as long as you
1: can.
0: Yeah, Dem- demolition by neglect is that historic preservation term for that, and this, yeah. you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to come over to my side and like, you know, join me chaining ourselves to the bulldozers down at Seattle High School Memorial Stadium, but I, I feel like um, there have a couple sort of, I don't know, crackpot theories that I'm working with. One is that one is that the the living memorial part of Seattle's High School Memorial Stadium was so successful. I mean, it was such an important location. Like, for instance, in 1948, it hosted the very first live television broadcast in Seattle of a, of a state championship football game, um, our very first TV station, first TV station north of Los Angeles and west of Denver, I think, in 1948. And then during the World's Fair in 1962, the same one where they built the Space Needle about, you know, 800 yards to the south of the stadium, it served as the um, location for the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies, and then, you know, constant activities concerts, performances, this thing called the Canadian Tattoo. It's like the largest of its kind in in history where all these um, pipers and drummers and people from all over Canada, guys dressed like royal mounted police. I don't quite know what it is exactly, but it's this big loud event that a lot lot of people even in their 80s now still remember. And then just all kinds of concerts and things. It's been this site of all these uh, football championships and everything. It's just it's packed with all the sorts of historical events and things that most historic landmarks, you know, would it would, it would, it would certainly fit all the criteria for the Re- National Register of Historic Places. But part of me thinks that, or one of my crackpot theories anyway, is that because it's been so successful as a venue, people have forgotten that it's a, a memorial to these high school kids who died, or not high school kids, but students from the school district who went on to die in World War II. It's like it's, it was so successful as a living memorial, people forgot it's per its original purpose. And they just, they, it's, it's practicality is all that remains, reminds, remains in people's minds. And the fact that it's been so poorly maintained and looks kind of like an eyesore now makes it easy for people just to be ready to tear it down, even though it's, it's truly, I mean, it's like tearing down a, a, a gravestone. It's, it's a monument to 800 war dead from the school district. Is that does that like a crackpot theory or does that have any kind of, you know, credence in your mind?
3: I, you know, it, sounds believable to me and i've seen other examples of it so that there was a major stadium in philadelphia veterans memorial stadium i think it was a a vietnam veterans memorial Mm. and it was knocked down to make way for a bigger better stadium with more expensive box seats for wealthy people yeah and um nobody mentioned anything about it being a memorial so i wrote into the philadelphia choir that put a little op-ed in, and they didn't <laughs> even take my letter, because I, I just don't think it's part of the consciousness. And, you know, one could then ask deeper historical questions about why, it, how is it that we lose consciousness of these things? And Because I do think it's wider than just one or two buildings. I think it is, it is an attitude towards war. All of our wars have been farmed out since World War II. We're more and more distant from them. Mm-hmm. And anything that reminds us of it might be actually anathema or uncomfortable to deal with. Huh. So there might, be, there might be all sorts of reasons that I think we could fathom if we, if we really dug into the literature and started seeing how people are thinking about these things and use them. I think we could come up with uh, all sorts of, I think, pretty sophisticated theories that could be substantiated about why, they're, why it's so easy to destroy something called a memorial. And, you know, and, and then from the other side, if I could just um, say, say something completely different but actually latched onto this, which is that memorials that are dedicated memorials that have no use value also bite the dust. They're also re- re- reoriented and moved and, and brutalized, and, <laughs> and they lose their commemorative value. And so these things happen even to something that is completely and, and obviously just a memorial.
0: Huh. Okay. So,
3: it, yeah, it's a, it might be a problem with memorials. Um, rather than a problem with the useful memorial. But it's hard, hard for me to know. I haven't thought through that question all the way.
0: Okay. I have a couple of, Let me run a, more, a couple more crackpot theories past you then. Then this one is yeah. a new one based on what you're saying. I mean, I think about my own living memory. I'm, I'm in my mid-50s, and I remember, you know, in the 1970s when, you know, all the gym teachers, all a lot of the history teachers were, were World War II vets. And World War II was just everywhere. You know, and all the rerun movies on TV were Kelly's Heroes or, you know, Guns of Navarone or whatever. It, it, it permeated the, the culture in a lot of ways because those, those guys were still around. In terms of World War One, I, I had no idea. I mean, I knew there's Snoopy and the Red Baron. I had some, some really just rudimentary grasp of World War One history. And, you know, at that point, it's, you know, 50 years in the past or 50 years or more, I guess, in the 70s. So is one possible crackpot theory that memorials have a certain half-life, like they're really valid for maybe 50, 60 years after the fact until the, the kids of the people who, who died pass away and then then they're ripe to be torn down?
3: Yeah, yeah, so there's no doubt that there are generational issues and cycles of commemoration that play into this. And some of this has to do with 25, 50, 75, 100-year cycles, where you might remember at the 100th anniversaries of World War I, a lot of memorials were revived, and people met at them and considered their fates and thought about them again. Mm-hmm. And it might take another 25 years for that to happen again, or it might not, who knows. But these cycles are important, and I I think your comment also speaks to the, the generational quality of history. I'm almost exactly your age, I guess, because all of my uncles and all of my professors and teachers were World War II era people. Yeah, and so it was part of consciousness, and uh, to some extent, I might have passed that on by writing about World War II. I might have even been led to it unconsciously by by the people who taught me. But it wasn't. I wouldn't say that I was. I never set out to write about World War II. I sort of stumbled upon it, and it was intriguing <laughs> to me, probably because those folks who had, who had trained me and my uncles had, had prepared me for it without me knowing it. And then, But my kids will not be interested in it, I assume, the way I was. They might be interested in something else that, that has a similar distance from their lives, that's um, romantic and nostalgic for them, but distant enough so that, that they have questions that are unanswered and they can ask those questions differently than i could ask because of my proximity to another event
0: yeah and and i guess yeah yeah yeah. that makes sense uh i guess i'm a little biased because you know you know i have my parents my parents both survived world war ii in europe Um, but i wonder um it's almost like there's this um failure of history failure of of education because the World War II, I mean, until very recently, maybe even, I mean, we're still pretty much living in a post-World War II world order, and we, we weren't there for a while after the end of the Cold War, but with the rush, the rise of Russia again, it feels very much to me like we're still sort of the allies versus the Axis and our great, you know, I mean, it's we're, we're living in a world that's very much defined by the way World War II turned out, whether it was the atomic weapons used right at the end, as you already mentioned, or the alliances created right after it ended with NATO and everything. And it feels like World War II is, is still really, even though it's 80 years ago, or almost 80 years ago that it ended, it's still far more valid than World War I was 80 years after World War I ended. World War I feels very 19th century to me and all these, you know, the Habsburgs and these different sort of uh, countries that don't exist anymore. Where World War II, it feels like it, it's still just, we're still in the immediate aftermath of it. And because education, history or civics or social studies education fails to, ex- to imprint that or fails to teach that to kids, World War II just becomes this thing we can forget about the sacrifices made, the atomic bomb. It's 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 irrelevant because it's 80 years ago.
3: Yeah. Well, the structure of the Cold War is still very much there. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, because Putin is a, a product of the KGB yep. and of communist communist Soviet Union, and American espionage is also, I'm sure, <laughs> strongly influenced by its Cold War origins. And so, yeah, I, I can completely see your point. Um, <laughs> There's also a big difference in what happened after World War I, which is World War II kind of superseded it and displaced it. Yeah. It wasn't even called World War I until World War, <laughs> War II came around. Right? So World War II even renamed it, and it becomes part of a continuous conflict, which continues into the Cold War and the, the wars in Korea and Vietnam and the United States, and, and, and then decolonization wars across the globe um, with European powers. Wow. And so there, the cascading of wars across the 20th century really made World War One seem like the beginning of of a series of events. Yeah. And yes, we're I hope we're at the tail end of that. I hope that World War Three is not brewing in in there or in China and Taiwan, which is the other great fear. Yeah. Um. But of course, that that's part of that world order too of the post-war period. Yeah. So we yeah. yeah.
0: Huh, okay, well now now I'm now I'm really depressed. No, I'm just kidding. All um, right. Uh, sorry. What, what, sorry what, <laughs> that, you can do that. to you. No, no, no. It's all con- the context is all really good. That's this is the kind yeah. of stuff that I feel like, if there were discussions like this, I, my sense is based on what the Seattle School District is, the materials they've put out about the stadium over the years. Um, I don't think they have any idea what they're talking about. Um, one of the really saddest aspects of this this RFP they put out, looking for a, a private group to come in and demolish and rebuild they'll let, they'll let them sell the naming rights as long as they keep the word memorial in it oh which is just i think that's a i think that's just egregious i don't know, the fact they, they lose the high school part of it they lose all cuz the full name is seattle high school memorial stadium nobody calls it that they just call it memorial stadium so that the right. naming rights thing i think is just that's just a that's just an abomination um, but the other kind of odd wrinkle for this one which is um, one thing i want to run past you cuz I, I don't know if you, if you would wouldn't would We'll have run into similar situations like this. This is like this little esoteric wrinkle in this whole thing. Um, so the stadium was dedicated in 1947 for the school year in September of that year, I think. Um, and then four years later, they added to it a wall, a big sandstone wall with 800 names engraved of the war dead from World War II, you know, people who graduated from Seattle Public Schools. And so... The, you know, the stadium exists as a memorial and call the memorial for four years before the wall is built. One wrinkle is the school district says, oh, we're going to save that wall. <laughs> you know, we're, we're gonna, well, that'll be preserved. We'll move that. We'll incorporate that somewhere in the, on the, in the landscape. It'll be, you know, it's, it's vague what they'll actually do with it. Yep. But I think they feel like because they're going to save the wall or they, they're saying they're going to save the wall with the names, it gives them the license to demolish the whole building. That's actually the actual original memorial.
3: Yeah, I can see their logic, right? And yeah. maybe we have Maya Lin to blame for this because she she whittled <laughs> down the idea of a memorial to a wall. And it's an incre- I'm not speaking against it no, because I, I think know. it's an incredibly moving <laughs> memorial. Um, but maybe maybe the the sort of negative lesson of that is all you need is a wall with names. Yeah. Uh, it, it does strike me that there could be other urban strategies to keeping the memorial quality of this alive, if only in in some sort of set of gestures. So for instance, the footprint of it could somehow be gestured to in the paving scheme Hmm. and elements of it might be echoed in, in the walls. I doubt any fancy architect would want to do that, but, um, you know, restrictions put on architects can be great spurs to creativity. So I I see no reason why you can't put that as part of the charge to have, have the ghost of that building be more alive than the new building. Um, so I don't I don't know yeah, um, yeah these these things are sad and I, I do I do really sympathize with your view that to simply have the wall and simply have the word memorial doesn't really do much um, to create you know to keep the memory of it alive
0: yeah I, I predict that whatever the whoever the naming sponsor is um, it will be it will, that will that's the name will morph to that the memorial name will go away and it'll be called you know whatever whether it's some local company or some local who knows what I mean the sad thing is you know it's it's all this is all part of the world's the 1962 world's fair campus which right. they called it Seattle Center after the fair was over and it's a mixture of buildings from different ages because when they when they raised the money to put on the fair they were smart and they repurposed three or four civic buildings that were already there including the stadium from 1947 including a couple auditoriums from 1928 I mean it was a really brilliant kind of adaptive reuse sort of a on the cheap kind of way of doing things um, and the Seattle Center itself is a fabulous civic campus with all sorts of cool stuff going on, and there's, there's new things they've built there, and it's, you know, there's some, the Space Needle is pretty much unchanged. They, they've modernized some parts of it, and there's some other buildings, like the Science Pavilion is still there. Um, so it's this kind of weird, eclectic mix, but it works for the most part. And on the opposite side of the campus was where they built the original um big auditorium, or big, uh, it was called the Coliseum, that was for the World's Fair in 1962 when they built that. That's where, you know, the Beatles played there in the 60s, and the Supersonics, our former basketball team, used to play there, and it was this, you know, multi-purpose kind of, you know, big, giant, like 16, 18,000 seat kind of place. Um, There was the same talk about 10 years ago, like, let's tear that down and build something new, let's get a private, you know, one of these big uh, arena, like AEG, or these other companies that do this kind of thing. But the preservation people were able to pull it off. They made them preserve the roofline, like the actual trusses and stuff, the very distinctive roof line and trusses from this building. And then they dug out under it. They built around it. But you, st- you look at it, and you still see the original roof shape of the 1962 Coliseum. Right. And there's, there's this really cool continuity. It's called Climate Pledge Arena now, which is kind of a goofy name that Amazon paid for, which classic Seattle goofy name, Climate Pledge Arena, and the hockey team plays there now, and if we ever get an NBA franchise back, they'll probably play there as well. So that, Mm -hmm. to me, is this very successful project of taking an, an old building, adapting it, and making it completely modern, but preserving the roofline and the skyline view. So you look over, and it still looks like the World's Fair campus from 60 years ago. Right. So, the, one of my other crackpot theories or arguments or some people are saying like why can't we do the same with Memorial Stadium? It's not as distinctive as the Coliseum from 1862, but it's got its own distinctive look. It's a fairly well-known architect who did some other modern stuff around here. So, I don't know. It's the appetite for this stuff. It seems like um it seems like the that that ne- demolition by neglect, that letting it letting it go to seed for the last 30 years cuz it is really decrepit. You can the, <laughs> There's a parking lot where there used to be the plaza in front. is a rental, a paid parking lot. You can mm-hmm. park your car. You can nose your car right against the base of the memorial wall. It's, right. It's really awful. It's it's just it's really yeah. awful. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know. Right. I I, I kind of my I, my mood goes up and down on whether it's worth sort of fighting the good fight to try to really create something there and really really push it or at least one thing I've said is. I think it'd be great if the school district could just be honest about the fact we are we're, we want to tear down the memorial. Let's not pretend that the memorial is just the wall of names. Let's be really honest with the public. So when we make the decision, we're really we know what we're doing. You know, we're not, we're not we don't regret it later. Let's be really clear about it up front. But I don't know if they I don't think they're going to do that personally. It's my personal opinion, so.
3: Probably yeah. not. It's probably not good PR for them. <laughs> and probably a lot of I'm, I'm assuming that there's a lot of money involved here and that the players in, involved in this um, you know they want they want to have control over the project that they're putting a lot of money into.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
3: I don't know. Follow the money, and you'd figure out who, who's willing to say what and and sponsor what. Yeah, but and- it it does. Yeah, it does seem like that there there are ways of making compromises that could be good for Seattle. Right. That history also has has something about it that's valuable and not just intrinsically valuable, but also. Financially valuable because people pay for to have contact with the dead, so to speak. You know, metaphorically, they they pay to have a relationship with the past. Yep. So um, yeah, so maybe there is a way to make some sort of compromise, be interesting and engaging, and not. Not lose money at
0: the same time. All not right. that I
3: have any interest in them losing money, <laughs> yeah. by the
0: way. All right. Well, I'll give them your number. And I don't expect yeah. them to call, though. <laughs> no, no, they won't. I'm sure not. All right. Well, Professor Andy Schenken from UC Berkeley, thank you so much for joining us on Cascade of History. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I, I was really hoping to hear your thoughts on this stuff, and you absolutely fabulous. I really hope we can have you on again sometime, maybe on a, on a happier subject. <laughs>
3: that sounds good. That sounds
0: great. All right. Thank, thank you for the time. Thanks. Yep. Good night. Professor Andy Schenken from UC Berkeley, expert on living memorials, and wonderful to hear his uh, perspective on Seattle High School Memorial Stadium. Okay, well, as promised, um, we're going to... Let's play the tease again. Remember what happened in installment number five of Washington at Work at J.C. Penney in 1938?
2: And we decided we'd follow the progress of the dolly, the little cart full of that item, to its ultimate destination. And on your floor, we happened to choose a sheet. Now, I'd like to know where that sheet comes to you from.
0: Well, I don't want to stand in the way of anyone getting to know where that sheet comes from. So here it is, installment number six of Washington at Work. And coming up after this, we're going to talk to Katie Mayer from the Oregon Historical Society about Viewmasters and Mushrooms. It's Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. I'm Felix Bunnell, and now, without any more delay, here's episode installment six.
2: All right, well, we're walking along now, and... Uh, We're going past a very lovely display of heavy draperies, and uh, we're going past a counter with blankets, and uh, around to our left, past some more blankets, and uh, here we are at the counter with the sheets on. Now, would you tell me, would I be correct in assuming, that this particular sheet with this particular tag might perfectly well be the sheet we saw marked up on the fifth floor it could very easily (laughs) i see well thank you very very much mr Cop. we're going now down to the second floor well bob here we are on the second floor and golly gee i (laughs) i i have nothing to say about this department at all as a matter of fact i I i'm unable to say anything because the lights and the color and the mirrors and the arrangements are also very beautiful I'm wondering if, uh, to save a bit of time here, we could ask a question directly of the man in charge of the second floor. Yes, of course. Uh, Mr. Thorson, would you come over here? Yes. Mr. Thorson, you certainly ought to be proud of this department. We haven't identified it yet. Uh, Would you tell us exactly what is here? Uh, This is the ladies ready to wear department. That would include what? That includes everything to wear for women. Uh, Very easily accessible, I expect, and arranged so it's most convenient. Well, it's the most convenient arrangement we have ever had in any of our stores, we will say. Well, I notice these display tables particularly. Uh, This beautiful, blonde, close-grained, almost ribbon-like wood. I expect that's some kind of imported Philippine wood, isn't it? Yes, it is. -hmm. And that uh, characterizes the department throughout. Well, now, uh, I just told Bob that I, I, just being a mere man here, I I wouldn't attempt to describe this department. I'm wondering if you have uh, one of your young women here who wouldn't mind giving us a description from a woman's stand well we do have just that woman Miss Reynolds
0: yes and we'll meet Miss Reynolds in our next installment of Washington at work It'll be part seven uh, <laughs> I don't know if any other radio program has ever taken an hour long broadcast from 1938 and stretch it out over as many weeks as I plan to stretch it out. We'll probably be going well into June or July with installments of Washington at Work at the J.C. Penney building in Seattle in 1938. Boy, it's like you're right there. It's amazing. The uh, Even with all the static and scratching and everything from the old record, it's just uh, the, the low-key narration as they go from department to department and talk about these things that they're seeing. It feels like you're right in that old department store, and uh, boy. I can't wait for episode number seven next week, and uh, ooh, that'll be a fun one. All right. Well, uh, coming up next, uh, it's Cascade of History, of course. I'm Felix Benell. We're here on Space 101.1 FM, broadcasting live like we do every Sunday night at 8 o'clock Pacific time from Magnuson Park and the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station. I'm in the Master at Arms quarters above the main gate, and we're here with the only live radio show talking all about Pacific Northwest history. And we like to talk to people, not just here in Seattle, we like to Jump around the region to British Columbia to Idaho, and this week um, we have a guest from Oregon joining us. And see if we can get Katie Mayer on the line here. Let's see, Katie Mayer, are you there? I am. Ah, terrific! Thank you for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. Um, I saw the blog post. Um, you're the technical, you're a technical services librarian there at the Oregon Historical Society. What does that mean?
4: Um, I oversee the library catalog and our other databases. So. I try to make it so that people are able to find the things that they're looking for in our quite large collection.
0: Nice. Now, how long have you worked at the OHS?
4: Um, about six and a half years.
0: Okay. And are you a Pacific Northwest person originally, or are you from some other part of the country? or?
4: Um, I'm from Hood River, Oregon, originally. Oh,
0: that counts as Pacific Northwest. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, I reached out to it was Rachel, I guess, uh, who works there at the Historical Society, because I read the blog post you'd put together about... Kind of interesting, kind of an archival discovery, kind of a, 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 it's a book, but it's not a book. It's a 3D object and a book all in one. What was it that, what was it that you'd come across or that you discovered had more to it than, than met the eye?
4: Sure. So, um, the library was renovated a couple of years ago. And while we were packing everything up to move it off site, um, I reached for what looked like the second volume of this kind of hefty two volume set called Mushrooms and Their Natural Habitat*. <laughs>
0: Um, That's a great title. <laughs> it is. Um, but
4: the second volume was weirdly, really, really light, almost weightless. <laughs> and so I flipped open the cover, and then I discovered that it was actually this really gorgeous velvet lined box. Um, and inside the box was a Viewmaster stereograph viewer and this little folio full of 33 real stereographs 30 of mushroom photography. Um, and even the little folio had been made to look like a small book to match the two-volume set. And what? How?
0: How far? What? What was that made? How far back did it date?
4: Um, it was published in 1949 by Sawyer, uh, the company that manufactures the Vastar.
0: Okay. And do we know? Did they? Did they make a lot of these? Was it kind of a rare thing, or was it something that you could buy like at Sears? Or where would people get this then?
4: Um. I don't actually know what the size of the print run was. Um, I do know that it was quite expensive. Um, it was $26.50 in 1949. Wow. Which, according <laughs> to the inflation calculator, would make it around $340 now in today's money. Um, and even one of the sort of early reviews I read that was really excited about the book sort of mentioned that the price on this was going to be pretty prohibitive for most people. Um, so I would not be surprised if... Um, if it had a fairly small print run, and and a lot of those copies ended up in schools or libraries or things like that, um, but I, I don't know for sure.
0: No, have you looked, or have you been able to, able to identify if any of these exist in other collections or on eBay or something like that? Or
4: um, yeah, there are some. Um, there are some. I think in the hands of private dealers. There are other libraries and archives that have them in their collections as well. So we definitely don't have the only copy. Um, there uh, was an earlier one about wildflowers that I think is actually much much harder to find I don't know if there are hmm. maybe only a couple of copies of that around the mushroom book is still a little bit more common
0: now I know it's an archive and a museum there but were you able to like play with it <laughs> <laughs> oh I
4: definitely yes, I definitely did load it up and have a look um, actually, it's amazing it really is pretty. it's out of my of chrome um, <laughs> And uh, in the introduction, the mycologist um, who wrote the text talked a little bit about sort of the amount of technical innovation that was required to produce it, because among other things, they needed to make sure that they could make a lot of reproductions of the master film in a way to guarantee the consistency of the color. Um, because wow. you, obviously, if you're going to use this as identification, you need some consistency in the, the quality of the color from uh, you know, book to book, yeah, and they in there had some actually very specific instructions about like what kind of light to view it over, um, so to make sure that you were actually seeing it as true to the color of the actual mushroom as possible.
0: Oh, because if like you hold it toward the wrong kind of like, you know, like a tungsten bulb or some other kind of bulb, it might it'll, it would skew the color that direction.
4: Right. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, but it's, they're really amazing when you look at them. I mean. Yeah, the opinion—it's like you're stepped into the forest. You can see how it
0: really
4: <laughs> would have been just a situation for a field guide, right? Um, especially for something like mushrooms.
0: Yeah, I, I like the idea of people like walking around the forest, like, wait, what's that one? Here, hang on, let me let me let me get my view master and compare this three D picture with this with this little viewer to see if it compares to the mushroom. Um, are, are the photographs of the mushrooms like in the wild, like planted, in, like sticking out of the ground, or are they like more like specimens on a dish kind of thing? Um,
4: they're more in the wild. Um, I think. So I recall from the introduction, they tried as much as they could to keep them in their actual surroundings that they grew in, <laughs> so that you could see, you know, they didn't really want to stick a ruler in it, they wanted to have the size being comparison to things like, you know, little pine branches that fell on the, br- on the ground. Ah. Uh, and in some cases, they had to manipulate them a little bit to show the, make sure they were showing the really important part of the mushroom, or to move it to a site that was where one would grow, but not, you know, if it was growing in a site that wasn't actually conducive to the photography, huh. they would move it somewhere equivalent that it would grow, but that they could still Got it. get what they needed.
0: And is, do you have any idea how long this object's been in the collection of the Oregon Historical Society?
4: Um, I do not know off the top of my head. Was it um, so- I want to say... 15 or 20 years. Oh, so it wasn't
0: something they, they collected contemporaneously when it was produced by Sawyer's, like, 76 years ago, or whatever it was, 74 no. years ago. Okay. Okay.
4: Um, we got this as a gift, um, I believe, from a relative of, or somebody associated with um, Walter and Anna Boychuk. Um, Walter Boychuk was also a well-known Northwest photographer. Ah, okay. Um, and uh, I, I think it ended up in the get it past, the family somewhere and eventually ended up with us nope. uh, but yeah we definitely have not had it since the time of publication it has an inscription in the front from the photographer to the boy check
0: okay and for someone i mean maybe we should stop a second for someone who doesn't know what a ViewMaster is because um, i mean you got, maybe you gotta be uh, over a certain age um i mean <laughs> in the 70s ViewMasters were huge I, oh i pulled let's can i play let me play this audio i found on youtube some old um Some old Viewmaster commercials, including one, I guess, Henry Fonda was their spokesperson back about in the early 70s. Let's listen to this little clip from a Viewmaster commercial. And Jody Foster's in this one, too.
1: Here, hang on. Wow. This GAF is a lot of fun. What do you think?
4: It's truly interesting. The three-dimensional color pictures are extraordinary. I
1: find these how-to-play football wheels very instructional. I always considered the GAF ViewMaster an ingenious invention, of great educational value.
2: Gee, I was. it was just a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that reminds. I mean, I you know again, I'm I'm like I'm in my mid 50s so I, I mean, I I grew up seeing commercials for ViewMaster on television all the time, and uh-huh. I had a ViewMaster. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think what, probably about 1974, 75, maybe a little bit after that. I got a ViewMaster, and it was. The 3D, I guess to, to describe it for somebody who's never seen one, it's, it's like one of those old stereo opticons. There's some process where they take two pictures, right, that are slightly... Yep. The camera lenses are about the distance apart of the typical human eyeballs, right? Mm-hmm. And then they, they, they put those into a, uh, a disc, that you, a physical disc, not, not like a compact disc, right. but an actual paper disc that has these little, like, a couple layers of paper that holds these little um, transparencies, like miniature slides and in the viewer your eyes look at each individual picture and your brain is tricked into thinking that you're seeing something in three dimensions in real life and it's 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 brilliant it's, it works really well
4: yeah it's incredible <laughs>
0: um now the uh i i didn't figure out until much later that there was a connection i, I remember seeing an old viewmaster i'd see those old stereopticon things that they had from the 19th century or the early 20th century And then I Mm -hmm. saw a Sawyer viewer, like, the you know, before it was GAF Viewmaster, it was called Sawyer's. And is there, do you you know anything about the, there's a connection to the Northwest and Sawyer's, is that correct?
4: Right. So Sawyer's um, was originally founded as a photo finishing service. And then um, not too long afterward, maybe within 10 years, I'm not sure the exact timeline, um, a man named Edwin Meyer and some of his family members bought Sawyer's. And then they ran it exclusively as photo footageing for a while, and then they branched out into printing on um, postcards and photo sets. And then, um, oh, in the late 30s, um, a Sawyer's employee named Howard Graves um, met a Portland man named William Gruber, who had immigrated from Germany, um, just by chance on a trip to the Oregon Caves. And Gruber had this prototype uh, rig for shooting stereographs for this idea he had had that you will now recognize from the Viewmaster, which is to mount the images on this flat disk that you would better rotate through the skewer. <laughs> um, and uh, like older uh, stereographs, often you often also see them mounted side-by-side on cards.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
4: this is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and so Howard Gray's was really uh, intrigued by this, and they got to talking, and eventually um, Sawyer formed uh, a relationship of some kind of William Grover. I've never been entirely okay. clear on the exact nature of the arrangement, whether it was a licensing or a kind of contract. Um, and they developed the Viewmaster as we came to know it, um, yeah. which became a huge part of Sawyer's business for a oh. long time. And- um, they eventually branched out into slide projectors. Okay. Um, and that was actually a huge part of their business at the time in the late '60s, which is when they were bought by GAF.
0: Okay, so GAF bought them, and all that stuff you're talking about—that the, the photo finishing business, and then the the, the development of the, uh, the the real type Sawyer viewer that became the ViewMaster—that all happens in the Portland area, or in in Northwest Oregon, pretty much, or? Yeah, huh. the founders, um,
4: founded in Portland, and they branched out. Once the Master became really big, they built a big plant um, in Progress, Oregon, which I think was out, kind of near Portland. I actually don't know exactly where Progress
0: There was was a big, oh, so a big factory was actually there. Wow, so manufacturing Mm -hmm. jobs. That's pretty cool. God, that must have been a cool place to tour. (laughs) I remember... um, I had a, I got a ViewMaster projector around the same time, or maybe a couple years after that. At a rummage sale, and it was missing a few parts, like it didn't have the little, the little uh, cage that went over the bulb. So I had to like make something out of cardboard and stuff. But I would, um, I would show, I would show ViewMaster reels and like make my parents and older siblings sit there and like, I would pretend like, kind of like it, the quality of the show is very much like this cascade of history, probably was just. <laughs> Me forcing people to listen to stuff I care about and having, you know, um, weird conversations, you know, every an hour for a a live hour every Sunday night. Um, But there were some really terrific local titles. I remember um, I had one called Lassie Rides the Log Flume, which was (laughs) it was it was shot in the Columbia River Gorge. I think on the Washington side, there used to be a log flume somewhere near Stevenson, that part of the kind of maybe like not too far from Hood River, but on the Washington side. And, you know, uh, kind of bell? yeah. And like Corey Stewart, the forest ranger and Lassie, the collie dog are up there doing something at a lumber mill or something. And Lassie gets injured and Corey has to ride the log flume boat with with Lassie to get down to the to the town or something so he can get Lassie to the vet clinic. And he has all these you know, exciting adventures. And there's but the photography of the you know, just of the, the lumber yard and the, the green Forest Service truck and the you know, the the, the big log flume like a trestle you know, perched, you know, pitched way out over the Columbia River Gorge and stuff. It's just, like, it's mesmerizing. And I, I still, that's the only one I have left. I had a whole bunch of them. I don't know where they all ended up, but the only one I was able to still hang on to was that Lassie Rides the Log Flume. But um, there, I remember the, uh, there was, a like, a, a dime store, like a 5 and 10 store called Ben Franklin, like one of the, nat- it's like a, not oh, a yeah. chain, but it was like a, you know, they think they were a, yeah
4: river, I remember that. Yeah, I
0: think the Ben Franklin was the company that distributed stuff, and then each store was individually owned and operated. But at the one in Redmond, Washington, just east of Seattle, not far from where I grew up, they sold all the new, you could buy the new packages. They, I don't know, they seemed expensive at the time, like those cool little color envelopes wrapped in cellophane. But then they had just this big drawer full of discontinued reels. Like, there was probably a 1,000 in there. It was like this big oh pile. God. And they all had, they all had rubber stamps, stamps on them that said discontinued. But if you sorted through them, which I, I had a lot of time, I guess, when I was a 10-year-old, you could sort through, you could find like complete sets, like real one, two, because there was three reels in any complete set. And so if you spent, you know, hours and hours of your 10-year-old life, you could find, I think I found one about the Brady Bunch. <laughs> I think I found a, a Harlem Globetrotters one. Not ones I would necessarily buy, but like, the, and the reels were, you know, if, if, a, if a complete package was like $2, you know, of, of a, one that was still in print, the reels were like five cents a piece in the discontinued bin. So for 15 cents, you could have your own little, but you didn't get the booklet. You didn't have any of the other stuff that came with it. So it was, you know, it was just a way to to pass the time for, you know, 15 cents 45 years ago. So um, (laughs) and I I wonder, I mean, just the Sawyers and Viewmaster, it's such an iconic product, um, especially in its in its heyday, which I would say was probably the 60s and the 70s. Does Mm -hmm. any, is it, does it have much, is there much, many people who remember it anymore in, in Portland or in Oregon, or is it, does it, is it still a beloved local product for people over a certain age, or is it sort of forgotten?
4: Um, I don't have a really good sense of that. I mean, I think that people, at least of a certain age, definitely remember the Viewmaster as a, as a, a toy. Um, I mean, I remember having, not having one, but like playing with them as well, um, my dad, actually, who grew up in the Portland area, says that he remembers the he remembers them well, and remembers the Oregon connection, and remembers the plan out in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's cool. So yeah, I mean, I think at least for people of a certain age, I think there's some awareness yeah. of the connection. Um, I'm not sure that I knew the connection growing up. Um, I don't think that I probably did.
0: Yeah, the, the the switch of the name from a Sawyer's to a ViewMaster—that's like you know, it's like the you know the Wright brothers versus the Apollo program. It's the Viewmaster <laughs> sound so much cooler than a Sawyer's, and I think mm-hmm. even even the, in the picture I saw of the mushroom set, it's an old—it's like that black shiny bakelite kind of viewer, that old mm-hmm. kind of old style plastic, and it looks almost like some kind of a um, like something an eye doctor would make you look through. It doesn't look like a fun toy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
4: yeah, and the ones that I remember were. Red plastic? Yes. Like a dark red I, plastic with a little orange handle.
0: Yeah, I had a I had a red and white one, kind of the mid range, like nineteen seventy era one. Then I remember they got sort of rounded and orange with like a blue <laughs> that make mm-hmm. that little plunger sound. The plunger thing on the side to make the to advance the reel. I mean yeah. it worked it worked great though. The fact that you like put the reel in once and you could just put that thing down and it would actually advance to the next set is pretty amazing the way it all worked out, uh-huh. I think. So Anyway, um, now, where's the best place people can go online to see the, the picture that I saw of the um, of the Sawyer Viewer and the Mushroom Book and, and more stuff from your blog post? Oh, um, the best place
4: would be the website for the blog, which um, you can find at ohs.org
0: slash blog. Okay. Got it. Okay. Now, um, what other projects are you working on for the near future, or what's, what's ahead for the, the Oregon Historical Society and the library that might be interesting to talk about?
4: Oh, um... <laughs>
0: Gosh. Putting you on the spot. <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, they a lot of neat stuff going through digital collections um, might be most interesting to people just because it's the most accessible from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, they recently put up some uh, neat stuff of um, some jetty construction and aerial uh, survey photos of the Oregon coast. Oh, cool. Which are pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they have kind of a kind of an ongoing new
0: stuff every week so that's great I love what you guys do you guys have such a nice mix of programs and the fact you cover the state the whole state of Oregon so effectively it's 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 pretty cool because we have a historical society here in Tacoma which kind of serves the western half of the state and then we have one over in Spokane that sort of serves the eastern half of the state but I think you guys, same way like OPB kind of covers all of Oregon, you guys do a really mm-hmm. excellent job covering all of Oregon with your, with your programs and your materials and just the exhibits and everything. So I think that's very cool. I'm glad you guys are there, and I'm glad there's people like you doing that kind of stuff. And I'm, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. To, I like the idea of also people being on the radio talking about Viewmasters, <laughs> you know, a, <laughs> a, a visual medium. Let's listen to one more commercial. I found one more commercial. This is from the Talking Viewmaster. Let's listen to this for a second. It's a short little, another Henry Fonda st- uh, starring.
1: Oh, look yeah. at that. It? Hey, tell everybody what's so great about this gift pack for Christmas.
0: Because the GAF Talking Viewmaster is so educational.
2: Watch. How deep's the Grand Canyon? The
1: Grand Canyon is over the <laughs> wild. Yeah. Yeah. Tell them more.
2: The GAF Talking Viewmaster is fun.
1: Tell them the best part. It'll keep your kids quiet for hours. <Yeah>.
0: I wonder what uh, Peter Fonda thought of uh, Henry Fonda. (laughs) It would be great to have a a Viewmaster commercial with Peter Fonda in it. Hey, kids. Was there an Easy Rider Viewmaster, I wonder? Probably not. Um, Probably not. All right. Well, Katie Mayer, Technical Service Librarian for the Oregon Historical Society, thanks for spending part of your otherwise uh, enjoyable Sunday evening with us here on Cascade of History, sharing your stories, and hopefully we can have you back again sometime to talk about other stuff there in the library collection.
4: Much. it was a pleasure
0: thanks katie good night right.
4: good night
0: that's katie Mayer with the oregon historical society um let's see we'll have to try to find someone from idaho or british columbia for next week's show so we can keep jumping around with our uh our uh, regional uh regional diversity because this is the as you know cascade of history our credo our motto our our mission and our vision i think all mention the fact that we like to have live conversations about local history with people all over the great Northwest, the old Oregon country, uh, the PNW, my least favorite name for the region, and uh, the Inland Empire, um, where else? Now those are the main names, I think. If you have ideas for the show, uh, if you wanna be on yourself and talk about the things you're doing with local history, you don't have to work for a museum. You can be just uh, an, an amateur individual historian doing stuff. Send an email to History at gmail.com. We love our cards and letters we get by email. We love hearing from people. About the projects they're working on, and we love to highlight stuff that's going on all over the region. Um, and you know, we we would love to feature you, or if there's an organization that you do work with or volunteer work with, or that you know of that you think would be a good fit. Um, I, I just like talking to people about the th- projects they're doing to s- to preserve and celebrate and share Pacific Northwest history. It's just I could I could do this I could do this for an hour every Sunday night, which in fact I do. And I know I pressed record this time, so unlike last week's episode this will be available as a podcast. That is also, uh, you can get that pretty much every podcast platform. I think Apple, Spotify, places like that. We also post the file at SoundCloud if you're more of a SoundCloud person, and we share it on social media. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter feed, but you know, Twitter's, I don't know, Twitter's not necessarily a good fit for what we do, but the Facebook page is pretty good. We've got a few hundred people there now following us, and posting things and sharing things. That's another great place if you have um, a story idea you wanna share, you could, you could post up there uh, or reach us through the, the Facebook page. That's a, certainly a good way to track what's going on. Um, let's see, what else did I wanna talk about this week before we hang up uh, the microphone for another week? Um, oh, you know, I don't know, if, uh, a couple episodes ago, um, Peter Blecka was on and he was talking about uh, Dave, talking about um, Ron Holden the Thunderbirds, and um, a great Seattle musician, and he would mentioned in the show that Dave Holden had passed away. And I was able to track down an old an old Dave Holden track called Seattle on the Puget Sound when it was played on KVI back in 1978. So let's play this as much as we can before the top of the hour here. This is Dave Holden playing a song his father, Oscar Holden, composed called Seattle on
1: the Puget Sound. Talking about how beautiful it was around the area today, the sunshine, just beautiful. Dave Holden uh has a song about seattle that i'm going to play for you here in just a moment he uh has gone i, I saw him this past week he's gone to vale colorado for a couple of months and then he'll be back in the seattle area what a great entertainer he is he made a movie on it uh well a movie a uh, just a little spotlight on himself at uh, bellevue community college and i got a chance to look at it the other day and it it's just uh, just beautiful Dave Holden what a Seattle Zone and doing well. We're going to hear a lot more from this guy. He's talking about Seattle and how pretty it is, isn't it? Ooh, love it. I'm going to settle down in a far west town The finest place I've ever found is Seattle, Seattle on the Puget Sound I tell you, it's the place, the place that great in Seattle, Seattle on the view.
0: We're going to say goodbye there. That's Dave Holden, the late, great Dave Holden, uh, passed away a few weeks ago in his father's composition, Seattle on the Puget Sound. I'm Felix Bennell. This is Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM, a community radio station streaming everywhere at space101fm.org. want to thank our guests, Professor Andy Shankin from UC Berkeley and Katie Mayer, the librarian from the Oregon Historical Society. Uh, join us again next week. Catch
1: the podcast. It's Cascade of History. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it! Watch it! That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History. It's produced in Seattle by Felix Bonell.